Christmas, the most peaceful time of the year, right? I mean, we talk so much about peace around Christmas, talk so much about just quiet and tranquility, and we have manger scenes and starry nights, and it looks all beautiful and peaceful and tranquil. And I'm sure that's what you're all feeling today, right? Day before Christmas, nothing but peace and tranquility, right? Nothing to do, no errands to run, nobody you need to be thinking about, uh, just peace, right? Is that is that where you're at? How many of you are at, like, you're at that point today? Yeah, I'm good. Like, I'm ready. couple of you. All right. Hey, good for you. Good for you. I think I'm mostly there. I don't think we have any errands we need to run today. Uh, so we're just excited for that. I got a service tonight. I get to work on Christmas Eve. That's rough, but uh, that's all right. No, I love it. I love our Christmas Eve service. But it's interesting because we do have this mentality of like peace and tranquility around Christmas. And yet if you think back to the first Christmas, was it peaceful at all? No, it was nuts, wasn't it? Like, you know the Christmas story, I hope. they, uh, Joseph and Mary, Mary's pregnant. They've got to go down to Bethlehem. Did you know this was a journey of like 90 miles? They had to go there, and it was crazy. There was nothing peaceful there at all. So here she is, nine months pregnant, walking 90 miles. And some people say, what about the donkey? There was no donkey as far as we know. If you look at the scripture, there's no donkey mentioned in them going to Bethlehem. That's like been added in later. Plus, I don't know that that's any better. Got to be honest with you. Walking 90 miles versus riding on a donkey, I think I'd rather walk. I don't know. Either way, it's, it's pretty terrible. And why? Why did they have to go to Bethlehem? If you know, there was a, a census that was decreed. So, so the Jewish people at this time, God's people, had been conquered by the Romans. So you have these foreign oppressors that were ruling over the land of Israel, over God's people. So right away, you have a lack of peace because they're not even ruling themselves. And then why would the, Jew, the, the Romans, rather, why would they declare a census? Why would censuses be helpful? Taxes. So here's Mary and Joseph and all the people in Israel having to go to the, the birthplace from the tribe, the family that they come from. So many of them are having to travel farther. Why? So that they could pay more taxes. This is great. Merry Christmas to the world. A time of peace and tranquility. And so in all this craziness that was going on, these angels appear to shepherds. And what do they say? Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. In the craziness of this census and Bethlehem's busting at the scenes and or at the seams, and poor Mary, nine months pregnant, had to travel ninety miles, and all these other poor weary travelers, and these angels appear and they say, Oh peace. And and if I was in Bethlehem at that moment and I heard that, I'd be like, Yeah, right. What do you mean peace? This is nuts. Everything is crazy. I can't find any place to get something to eat. We barely got into the hotel last night. Everything seems to be falling apart. And on top of that, by the time I get home, I'm going to be paying more money in taxes. This is not peaceful at all. Peace. That's what I want to talk about today as we finish up these titles 
of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This prophecy of this Messiah that would be born to deliver God's people. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, gives us these descriptions that Jesus would fulfill. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we've been talking each week. I think it's important when you read a verse to understand where it's coming from, what the context is. The context of this was a time of not peace, anything but peace. Israel was split into two kingdoms. They had had a civil war. These two kingdoms absolutely hated each other. And the southern kingdom, which is who Isaiah is talking to in this passage, they are scared out of their minds because the northern kingdom looks like they're about to attack. They've gathered some armies, they've gathered uh, other enemies of the southern kingdom, some allies with the northern kingdom, and they are about to attack. And the southern kingdom knows something, an absolute truth, they know we cannot win. We are going to lose this war. And into that moment, that anxiety, that lack of peace, that turmoil, comes this prophecy. God saying, I am making a promise to you. I am sending someone to you that's going to rescue you. That's the larger context of Isaiah chapter 9. And someone does come, a good king is born, and God rescues them through some other means as well. And things for a while at least work out for the southern kingdom. But these titles here in Isaiah chapter 9, There's this big question mark because there's nothing that happens in the history of this moment that anybody would look at this verse and go, oh yeah, that was completely fulfilled. In fact, by the time of Jesus, people understood there had to be someone else that would come to perfectly fulfill this. So this morning, we're going to look at this title of Prince of Peace. What does it mean that Jesus is our Prince of Peace? And we have to ask, what is peace, so that we actually understand, and then we can ask, how does Jesus bring peace? So we've got to understand what real peace is, what a biblical peace is, because there are so many fake substitutes in this world. Has anybody ever, kids, have you ever like gotten a cookie, maybe for Christmas or something, and you're just so excited and you bite into that and you realize like that person, and I know some people have to do this, but that person used like a sugar substitute. And like you're so excited and you get this cookie, you bite into it, and it's like, ugh. So funny story, I think I can tell this, it's not embarrassing to my mom, or my mom, my wife. That was embarrassing. <laughs> you are dismissed. Ah. <laughs> uh, There's no coming back for that. It's going to be on tape. (laughs) Merry Christmas to everyone. You have blackmail for the rest of my life. There was a story in there somewhere. Oh, yeah, my wife and her family, when she was a kid, they went to someone's picnic and they had ice cream. And the story goes, right, they had, it's not really a substitute. They had accidentally swapped sugar for salt. In the homemade ice cream. So you can imagine as a child, like you're so excited. You're like, yes, ice cream. I, I cannot even begin to imagine what ice cream flavored with salt would taste like. It would be terrible and very disappointing. But my point is this. We, 
we have all these peace substitutes in our world. Fake peace. Things that we latch onto and say, oh, this will bring me peace. Or this is what peace is. And we give into and redefine what true peace is. One of the fake substitutes we accept for peace, and this one I think is not very obvious, but it is the absence of conflict. And I know for some, that's the very definition of peace. When there is no conflict, you have peace. But here's the problem with this. It is only partially true, and that's why it's a poor substitute. Because if peace is the absence of conflict, and let's say you have two friends, two family members, Two groups of people, and they hate each other, and they're at war with each other, and they're fighting each other. Well, then peace would be just stop fighting. Have you ever been at a Christmas party with family? There's two people that just hate each other. Sure, maybe in that moment they're not fighting. Maybe there's no fists going. Maybe there's no words going. Would you say those two people are at peace? No, not at all. It's a fake peace. So if we think that peace is simply ceasing a conflict, laying down the weapons, holding the feelings in, what we're promoting is a fake peace. And what happens is everybody becomes like they're walking on eggshells because they know the conflict is just bubbling under the surface. And we're always afraid of some word that we might say, something that we might do, a a look that we didn't intend in a certain way to set them off, and boom, the conflict is right there. True peace does not come from simply avoiding or, or laying down a conflict. True peace has to come from resolving the conflict, the underlying issues. So that's one false substitute. It's just avoiding or doing away with conflict. Another substitute for fake peace, I think this one's a little more obvious, is apathy. Apathy, just not caring. We see things on the news, we we hear things from family or from friends, and we just think, oh well, just the way it is. Who cares? Nothing we can do about it. It doesn't matter. That might get us through for a while, especially if the conflict doesn't directly involve us. But it's a fake substitute. Another substitute for peace is self-righteousness. Let me explain what I mean by that. Imagine, and and this happens to me sometimes, I'll be talking with someone here at church, and we'll be talking about a current event or something like that, and we go through all the things that should happen, or Bill's game, or whatever, You're talking it over. It's like, well, they should have done this. And if they would have done this, they would have had this. And they didn't have to make that game so stressful. But all these things could have happened. Here's what you need to do. And you talk it out, right? And sometimes jokingly at the end of one of those conversations, I say to the person, well, we got that all figured out. And then we walk away, right? Self-righteousness is this idea that if everybody would just do what I think, everything would be great. It would all work out. And it doesn't matter if people actually have to do what I say. I just need them to think that way. And I just need to think that if they did it, everything would be okay. We think that we are right. And everybody else needs to do it our way. And we have this moment of peace, this moment of clarity, like, well, I figured that out. And I'll do this, and as long as everybody else does it, it'll all work out. 
but it is a problem because the conflict still remains. The issue still remains. We just feel self-righteous and justified. Another fake substitute for true peace is simply avoiding the issues. It's a little different than apathy. Apathy is, I see it, but I just don't care. Avoidance is, I'm just not going to look at it. I just don't want to know. Now, there's some wisdom in this. We live in a world where our our senses, our our thoughts, our feelings are just crammed full of current events constantly over social media, news. It's a constant cycle. There is a place to turn it off and say no to, to some of that. But there's another way of avoiding it as well, and that is with distractions. And so we have a sense of peace because we're avoiding the conflicts by just distracting ourselves. Maybe it's through entertainment or sometimes it's through other distractions, alcohol, drugs. As as long as we don't have to feel or think about or face the problem, we can pretend or convince ourselves we have peace. But the problem is the issue is still there whether we avoid it or not. So that's not real peace. It's always temporary. So what is real peace? The word in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is probably one of the most familiar Hebrew words to most people. It is the word shalom. Have you heard that word before? How many of you heard the word shalom? Kids, you guys heard the word shalom? And it means peace. Duh. Pretty obvious. But what did the Hebrews mean by shalom. Because it is, I would suggest, a much greater word than our English word of peace. It is much bigger. Shalom in Hebrew is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of proper purpose. Shalom is the world working according to God's plan. This means that there are times that in order to have shalom... Sometimes you have to engage in, dive into conflict in order to reach resolution. You cannot reach shalom or attain shalom by avoiding conflict. One author puts it this way, and I love the way he worded this. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace. But it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is our lives, our relationships, our world operating the world or operating the way it ought to be. Now, that should set off some alarm bells. Who gets to determine how it ought to be? I think that that question right there lies at the heart of most of the conflict in the world today and probably most of the conflict in the world ever. Because everybody has their own definition of how it ought to be. Kids have a picture of how on Christmas morning and they open those presents, how it ought to be. I remember, maybe some of you remember this clip several years ago, but a kid opened a, a, a toy on Christmas and he goes, it's a dinosaur. And then right away he started bawling and going, I don't like dinosaurs. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious because in that moment he has this idea of, I have a gift and I got a dinosaur. But 
this is not the way it ought to be because I don't even like dinosaurs. So in one moment, the gift gives him great joy. And in the next moment, he absolutely hates it. Kids, don't do that, okay? Sunday, or it's Sunday morning. Christmas morning, tomorrow morning, when you open those gifts, fake it, all right? If you, if you don't like it, just pretend. Parents don't need to know. But we have this idea of how it ought to go, how many gifts we ought to get, what kind of gifts we ought to get. And if at the end of opening those presents, it didn't go the way it ought to go, oh, there will be no peace in the house. (laughs) Or when the toy doesn't work the way it should, or the batteries don't fit, or God forbid, you don't have the right batteries. Things will not go the way they ought to go. So who gets to decide the way things ought to go? In Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, this is later in the same book that Isaiah 9 comes from. We read this, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. This is talking about God. So, So peace comes from trusting in God. Another way of looking at trust is God gets to determine what ought to be. He gets to set the tone. He gets to define reality. He sets what is truth and what is error, what is right and what is wrong. And so peace comes from those who trust in the Lord, accept that from him. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. And I love this here because where he says in perfect peace, that's actually in Hebrew, as I understand it, it's, it's simply the phrase shalom, shalom. That's their way of saying like over and above. They just would repeat the word twice. It's like, don't miss this. I'm going to say it twice. So that phrase, perfect peace, is literally peace, peace, exceeding peace, abundant peace. You will keep in perfect peace, shalom, shalom, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Think about this. At the heart of our faith as Christians, at the heart of the truth of the Bible is that there is a God who created us, who defines all things because he created them. He is the only one that truly knows what ought to be. And so trust in scripture is us laying down what we think ought to be and accepting that God knows better. Peace comes by trusting in the Lord of peace. Now, it is good to seek peace. It is good to work for peace. And we'll look at that later. But we have to be careful not to fall for or accept fake substitutes of peace. And sometimes as Christians, I think we need to be careful because what we're accepting or grabbing onto and trusting in is a fake substitute of peace. And sometimes what we're promoting to others is a fake substitute for peace. We want to get to the heart of what true peace is. The world operating the way God intends, according to his perfect wisdom and his sovereign plans. And so when we look at Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and this idea of Jesus, this promised Messiah, who would be our Prince of Peace, how? How does he accomplish this peace? First of all, we have to understand that it is surprising and unexpected. 
John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your heart trouble, be troubled, and do not be afraid. There's so much going on there, but just look at that phrase. Not as the world gives. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Jesus gives peace differently. And part of that is, as we've already established, because the peace he is giving is different. It is different than the peace this world has to offer, which is a false substitute. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, in the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Transcends all understanding. It goes beyond what we can accept or imagine. The peace that God is talking about in Isaiah chapter 9, that Jesus would be the Prince of Peace, it is greater than what we can even comprehend. It is a surprising peace. It is unexpected. So we have to come to Scripture to understand what that peace is because we're not going to get it on our own. We're not going to understand it or arrive to a definition of it. And when we do that and we come to Scripture, we see that peace in Scripture It's not a thing. Peace is not this gift that's given to us, this thing. Peace is ultimately, in Scripture, a person. And it's the relationship with that person that brings peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, speaking about Jesus Christ. And again, let me give some context here. This is writing to a church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles is everybody that's not a Jew. And they were struggling in the church. Because these two people groups absolutely hated each other. It's been going on since the dawn of time that there have always, ever since sin entered the world, there are people groups that hate each other. And Paul writes this as he's saying, look, here's how we're going to bring peace to this situation. He says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is the solution. It's not getting each group to start doing a certain thing and stop doing something else and start treating each other different. They both need to fall on their face before Jesus Christ and say, He is Lord, I am not, I will trust Him and follow Him. And then what happens as both groups are on their face before Jesus Christ is they will find they have peace with each other. Jesus is their peace. Peace is brought through relationship and salvation through Jesus Christ. How does he accomplish this? John chapter 20, 19 through 20. This this passage is such a cool passage because it's after Jesus has gone to the cross and he's risen from the grave and the disciples are together and Jesus just appears to them. Man, to be a fly on the wall in that room would be awesome. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, this is a common way of saying hello in this time, peace be with you. But man, when Jesus says it, it means something so much more. Because here's another situation, kind of like the birth of Jesus. There's no peace here. The disciples are hiding in a room because the Jewish leaders are out to get them. They're ready to round them up and arrest them all. And they just crucified Jesus, their leader. So the disciples are thinking, yeah, they're probably going to do the same to us. This is not going to go well. Plus... 
They just lost their friend, Jesus. They just lost their rabbi, their religious leader. They just lost the one that they thought was going to make everything great. And they saw him die brutally on a cross. And they're thinking it's all over. There's no peace here. And so Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. And then he does something. And I think what he does is at the heart and soul of where that peace comes from. He showed them his hands and his side. You see, the hands were the place where the nails from the cross went through. And he still had the holes and the scars from that. The side was the the place where the spear had punctured through as he hung on the cross. And so part of their peace was the proof that he really was Jesus and he really did rise from the dead. The other part was that he really did conquer sin and death. And that phrase in that moment, peace be with you, I think carried a vastly greater weight than that phrase had ever meant before. Paul says it this way in Romans 5 verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is the ultimate peace that Jesus brings. Our ultimate issue, our ultimate lack of peace in our lives, in our culture, in our world, among people groups, it all stems from one issue. Our relationship with God was broken through sin. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then you can trace it all through Scripture. What you see is that when the relationship between humanity and God is broken through sin, then the relationship between one human and another becomes broken. The relationship between humanity and all of creation becomes broken. And it's all because of the first broken relationship. We are separated from God. And here we see the restoration of that relationship. Through Jesus Christ, we have been justified through faith. That means the punishment for our sin has been put on Jesus and he paid the price. So when God looks at us, he does not see the guilt of our sin. He sees paid in full through Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be justified. And that's how we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Prince of Peace, died in our place. It sounds weird to talk about it on Christmas Eve. But guys, if we don't understand that that's what Christmas is all about, then we don't understand Christmas. And the peace of Christmas is not about the starry, twinkly stars and night and people singing on Christmas morning as this baby was lowing in a manger. That wasn't even the scene on the first Christmas. The peace of Christmas is because that baby would grow up, willingly die in our place, and rise from the grave, promising eternal life to all who believe. That's why he is our Prince of Peace. But briefly, what what does it mean to be the prince? We live in a world where peace is transitory. It, it just it, it it's here for a moment and then it's gone. Do you know what they called 
the First World War during the First World War? Because they didn't call it World War I, right? Because that assumes another one. We call it World War I. What did they call it? The War II? Some of them did call it the Great War too, which I don't think meant awesome. I think it meant huge. Um, but the other title was the War to End All Wars. And I did a little bit of research that was coined by uh, the author H.G. Wells, wrote a few things that people might have read, Time Machine, War of the Worlds, you know, minor books. Um, but, but he wrote a series of articles that then got collected into a book that was called The War to End All Wars or The War to End All War. Think about how bold that was. Think about how short-sighted that was. To think that, man, if we just get through this, humanity could just get through this moment and we could win this war and that would be it. Everything would be perfect. You don't have to know a whole lot of history to know that is not what happened at all wasn't long after the First World War, we had a second war, and we had many others after that, and we continue to have wars going on today. There's no such thing among human beings with a human solution of a war to end all wars, because any peace that humanity can achieve for itself will always be temporary. So we have this title, Prince of Peace. Prince means one who rules One who has authority over the peace that Jesus brings is not some short-term solution. He has the authority to keep the peace going. Jesus is the prince of peace of a new kingdom. A kingdom where his peace reigns and will never end. A kingdom that is breaking into this world where people are living in right relationship with God according to the ways that God intended. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are living demonstrations of the kingdom of the Prince of Peace. Jesus is not a weak ruler. And what he has promised, he will accomplish. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, one of my favorite passages. Think about the peace in this passage. This is describing when when the new heavens and the new earth will come down and Jesus will reign forever. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these, this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of eternal life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. That is a peace that will never stop, never end, never fail, and never be taken away. Because from that moment on, sin has been dealt with and removed. 
And from that moment on, the world will operate perfectly the way it ought to. The way God designed it to. The way sin has tried to destroy, but Jesus Christ has overcome. That's what it means to have Jesus as your Prince of Peace. He paid the price, purchased it for us, offers it to us for free through his death and resurrection. Peace can only be found in Jesus Christ. We can't take the peace from the prince as this gift without accepting the prince of peace himself. He's got to become our Lord, our prince, our savior As we look at the lack of peace in our world and in our lives, I pray that we can remember that baby born in the manger came to bring peace, not for a moment, not for a fleeting feeling, but to come and take care of the underlying issue to save us from our sins. Our Prince of Peace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for our Prince of Peace. And God, as we wake up tomorrow morning and we proceed with traditions and celebrations and meals and gifts and family times, I pray, I pray that we stop and just hit the pause button. Remind ourselves and those who are Christians to remind those around them, this is all about Jesus. The child born unto us to be our true Prince of Peace. Thank you so much for that incredible gift and for the peace that Jesus alone can bring. In your name we pray. Amen.